Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Key to Connection podcast. I wanted to jump in real quick before we get started on the episode and give some background information. So today, Izzy and I are talking about our career paths since we graduated. And I noticed during editing, we mentioned a couple terms that a lot of our followers are not going to be familiar with as they're pretty technical terms used in the field of speech language pathology. So first of all, we talk about our clinical fellowship year. For anyone who's not familiar, a clinical fellowship is something during a speech language pathologist career right after grad school where it's about takes about nine months. But this is when we are not fully licensed. We have a temporary license. We are working under a supervisor. It is a really valuable time and many SLPs experience poor clinical fellowship years, which is something that we talk about. Um, I also talk about two different instrumental assessments that we use in the medical side of things. So I mention an MBS and I mention a fees. An MBS, Modified Barium Swallow Study, is basically just a video x-ray of the swallow. So patients will be brought into an x-ray room and an SLP will provide them food and liquid of different textures with something called barium added so it shows up on the x-ray. The other test that I mentioned, the FEES, a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. This one is a very thin, flexible tube with a camera on the end. This is inserted by an SLP or an ENT, ears, nose, and throat doctor. And it's inserted into the nose and pushed back to where it kind of dangles above the throat area where you're swallowing. So you have a bird's eye view of the trachea, of the opening of the esophagus, the epiglottis, and once again, um, patients will eat food and liquid so that we can see what is going on, if anything is going into the airway, if someone is able to expectorate something out of the airway, we can make better decisions based on what therapy they will benefit from to rehab the swallow based on these tests. So anyways, without further ado, I will start the episode and I hope you guys enjoy. Hi, welcome back to the Key to Connection podcast. We're so happy to have you guys back. We are filming this episode this Sunday after we launched our first five episodes and we're just so grateful. I mean, how many how many plays do we have at this point, Izzy? So as of this morning on October 23rd, we have uh, 116 plays, which is so good. I'm so happy about. That's a lot. Yeah, we're so grateful and so happy that people want to listen to us and hear the conversations that we're having with all of our guests. And thank you to our guests for having being able to bring their perspectives and their um, stories. And yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you everyone so much. We're so grateful. And Esty and I actually got to meet up for the first time since graduate school yesterday and see each other and talk in real life. And it was so nice. And <laughs> yeah, it was so fun and celebrate. All right, Izzy, what are we talking about today? So today Esty and I are going to talk a little bit about our career trajectories, where we've been, where we're going what we've learned, how things have changed for us in our career as speech language pathologists. And um, yeah, I think Esty and I have both, you know, 
done a little bit more of the unconventional route in our field, but we've also done some of the more traditional jobs. So we, we kind of bring a unique perspective to this one. And I, I think it'll be good. I was like trying to think of what kind of audience would want to listen to this episode. And I think, you know, if, if you're looking to make a career change or a career pivot, or um, if you're interested in speech pathology and want to hear about our experiences, or, you know, if you, you've ever experienced that post-grad feeling of confusion and what do I do next and what's the next step to take, then hopefully um, listening to this can, I mean, we won't be able to give you much guidance in this episode, but at least we can acknowledge the feeling that a lot of people have and just knowing that it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to feel a different way. And we're always evolving and growing. And that also involves our career dreams and our aspirations. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, sometimes our society doesn't value, at least the old kind of paradigm, doesn't value changing your workplace or even changing where you live. Um, if you think about it, like we are so our system is so designed to like you know you stay in one job so you can build your 401k we value like staying in one place and um that's kind of how the system wants you to operate Mm -hmm. and I think I've had to learn in my trajectory that changing is okay exactly what you were saying SD so it, it, it can be hard sometimes sometimes you feel like am I doing the right thing like am I just gonna be hopping around job to job forever you know, when will I land or it's, it kind of takes some acceptance to be okay with changing things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you said, the acceptance I think is a hard thing to give ourselves. And especially if you have that pressure from outside influences kind of saying, you know, stay on one path, stay in this job for a year, you know, I feel like my dad, my dad doesn't tell me that anymore because I think he knows I'm not going to listen. But I know like when I was younger, the advice that he would give me was, you know, stay at a job for a year and then you can explore your options, which is a good strategy in a lot of situations. And if you're able to stick things out for a year, do it. But if you're not able to, then just get the hell out. Because <laughs> I, after I graduated, I think the shortest I stayed with a company was five or six weeks. And that was, and I'm even thinking of two different positions and I can't figure out which one was shorter, but they were both around five to six weeks that I ended up leaving. And both times I left because I had a better opportunity. That was a better fit for me and also better compensation. And at least, you know, with our generation and our economy today you really have to fight really hard to get paid what you're worth and staying at a company out of loyalty you know a lot of companies aren't going to give you that same loyalty so just always my advice is always like put yourself first and I know some people will disagree with that and some people are going to feel better sticking things out for a year at a job they don't like, or at a job they're not, you know, getting paid what they're worth. And that's okay. Um, everybody has an individual approach to it, but I do just want to normalize the unconventional path that 
it's okay and you're still able to be successful. And there's even statistics that say like if you switch job companies, you get like an average of a like 20k increase. Um, I'm gonna have to look that up just so I make sure I'm not giving you guys like some bogus research, but I'm pretty sure there's a research study out there saying like in recent years, if you switch companies, on average, people who do that will make like 20k more. Um, and I know people in my own circle who have done things like that and have made more. And I myself have made a lot more by switching companies. So it's no longer a matter of like, let's see how long I can stay at this company and build my seniority and I'm going to get rewarded for that. A lot of companies are not rewarding you for that. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, in the field of speech language pathology, we're so needed. We're such a hot commodity that uh, employers are not going to look at your resume and be like, oh, you were only there for nine months. You know, they're not looking at that and thinking, oh, this is not a good candidate. They're looking at your clinical skills, your personality, your knowledge, your evidence-based practice experience. And that's what they care about. I, I've even found that in my job search, the fact that I have different experiences has been an asset for me. That's something that employers like. So I think in our field, especially we're lucky that I don't think that rule really applies, especially if you want to get like a, a job in the schools. I mean, schools desperately need SLPs, so they will take you. So I don't think it, we need to worry so much about what our resume looks like, I guess. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. It can be seen as an asset. And if you're able to spin it as like, you know, I'm a flexible clinician. I'm adaptable. I've worked with so many different settings and populations and it can also be a good thing. I was in an interview. So during my clinical fellowship and for anybody who doesn't know, speech pathologists, our first like nine months of practice is considered a clinical fellowship. We get paid a little bit less. We have a supervisor that has to sign off on a lot of our documentation. And it's kind of like the last step before we get fully licensed. And, um, and that's a whole other story that we might get into on this episode. I'm not really sure, but for my clinical fellowship, I was at a skilled nursing facility employed through a contracting agency for six months. And um, a lot of things happened during that time. And I ended up leaving after six months. And it was very scary because I wasn't fully licensed. So leaving in the middle of a clinical fellowship, I was worried that a lot of places would not hire me at that point. Um and I did have to adjust my expectations. I never expected to work in the schools. And after that, I had to finish my clinical fellowship in a school. But it ended up being a really great thing for me. And I've used it along the way in my career. So I'm glad I had that experience. It was also like a couple months before COVID happened. And so I was able to have that job security because like, as you said, we're really needed and there is a shortage of speech pathologies across every setting. Um, but I was able at working in the school, I was able to have that job security that I think some contracting agencies um, didn't have that security. They, they would let some of their clinicians go from what I heard. So it ended up being a positive, but I was interviewing at, this was a year ago, I was interviewing for an acute rehab position with a pretty great hospital system in the state of California. And um, I did the interview in person. They had a great SLP team. They were a little bit older than I was. So I, I feel like I would have been the youngest clinician, but they were extremely sweet and very supportive. And 
Um, the director of rehab was a physical therapist, but he seemed, you know, very invested in the interview and still wanting to, you know, choose a really valuable candidate. And so I'm sitting there in the interview and he asks me, you know, I see that you did your first six months of a clinical fellowship at this skilled nursing facility, which that facility is like as close to acute rehab as I had worked in. So it's understandable he'd ask me about it. Um, but he did ask, you know, why I left without completing my clinical fellowship. I was honest and I told, and I was honest in a way of like, I didn't want to bash the other company. I didn't want to throw any specific names under the bus, but I had ethical differences with my supervisor. I felt like my values didn't align with the company I was working for. And I felt extremely undervalued by that company. And I could have gone into detail and told him exactly what happened, but I didn't, I, I was honest, but I kept it vague and also upbeat. Um, you know, and I said, I absolutely loved my patients that I worked with there. I had an amazing director of rehab that I worked with there. I absolutely loved her. I would have done anything for her, but there were other individuals high up in that company that I just couldn't work for. And he wrote something down on his paper and I wasn't trying to look at it. I wasn't like leaning over the table to look at it, but he writes something down on his paper and underlines it. And then we continue with the interview. And I was kind of wondering, like, I wonder how he took that. And then at some point in the interview, he puts his paper down and I just happened to glance at it. I wasn't trying to see what he wrote, but I happened to glance at it. And I see that what he wrote down was good ethics. And oh, oh my God. I know. And it made me wow. feel really good. Because I was like, I did the right thing. Because I always questioned whether I did the right thing when I left that company. And like, how how would my life be different if I had just stuck it out? Um, you know, I had really wanted to work in the medical setting. And this was an interview for the medical setting. And so I had always wondered, like, would I have gotten in there sooner? Um, and that that company ended up offering me a job. And I wish I could have taken it because I think it was an amazing department. Um, and obviously they value ethics. And so seeing that I was like, this, this department aligns with my values. Um, I didn't end up taking it cause I had just moved to Bakersfield. I had been looking for a job in a medical setting, applied to so many jobs, um, when I was leaving the schools in the Bay area and no, nobody was getting back to me. And I had ended up taking another job in Bakersfield. And right after I moved, I got this call from um, this acute rehab facility in the Bay Area. But it just would have been way too complicated to move back. And it was part-time. And I needed a full-time position at, at that time. So I wish I, I wish I could have taken that job. But just doing that interview even just kind of gave me that confidence boost of like, a medical setting wants me to. Even though I don't have that much experience there, like... I can fit in there too. So. Mhm. Mhm. So, absolutely. That's a great story to tell because it shows that you know, if your values come through during an interview, that's what people are looking for as well. Yeah, if you're honest and you're well-intentioned and you're, you know, just like a good clinician, then that's going to show in your interview. And it just, again, goes back to my point of, I don't think that employers are really judging you for moving around, moving around uh, sites and jobs. Um, I think 
you know, they respect that, that you're following your values and morals. And, and I mean, it it also, there is a little bit of finesse to it, I guess, like in an interview, being able to highlight the places that you did stay for a long time, you know, like I loved working for this company and I worked there for this amount of time, but then I had to move on because it was time for me to go forward, you know? So being able to highlight the positives and in the interview. Um, I love how, when you were talking about your interview, you said, I kept it upbeat, you know, and that's exactly right. Like you do want to show that like the, the things that you loved about that position or, you know, like why, that, why the work you were doing was still what you wanted to be doing. It's just maybe the other factors impacting things. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with you that you want that to come through during an interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you put it better than I could. So yeah, I appreciate you. But yeah, and that also goes to show SLP is listening. If you want to get into a certain setting, you don't have to do your clinical fellow in that setting. Like you can jump from settings. And I know a lot of people will tell you like, it's hard to go from medical to schools. It's hard to go from schools to medical or like pediatric private practice or, you know, all of, all of these things. And I just want to say, if you, if it's what you really want, there's avenues that you can take. It might take you a little bit longer than you wanted or that you expected, but I made it, you know, I, my whole dream during grad school was to be an acute care SLP. Like I really wanted it. And I didn't want that to be my entire career. I wanted to do that while I was young. I could work the like the crazy hospital hours and all of the, you know, chaos that happens in the hospitals. And then when I was older, I wanted to do like outpatient, but still working like, you know, medical adult cases. And over time, like I had kind of a winding path, but I made it. I worked in the hospitals. I worked in multiple hospitals and I was hired at these hospitals without experience doing MBS, which I always thought was going to hinder me, but they need you enough that they will train you. And if you show that you're willing to learn. So yeah. And, and it's funny because once I actually reached that dream, I realized this is, this actually isn't what I want. And so then I'm pivoting again. So yeah, I think it's good to just keep an open mind and it's okay if your dreams and aspirations and goals kind of change along the way. Mm-hmm. Esty, you're speaking my language. It's so nice to talk to someone who understands because I've been in the same boat of having certain dreams, um, changing my mind a lot about exactly what setting I want to be in and just knowing it's okay. And somebody else is doing it too means so much. Um, I also just wanted to go back to um, when you were talking about the MBS and kind of like instrumental studies. Um, I was thinking when you were saying, you know, if you are coming from like a school or, or private practice or pediatrics and then moving into a hospital, I don't know for sure, but potentially like a per diem position might be a good fit to get your foot in the door. Cause sometimes per diem SLPs don't even do the instrumentals and then you can kind of work your way into doing it. And just for our audience, um, like an, an MBS is a modified barium swallow study where somebody, you, a patient eats and drinks with a little bit of food and liquids with barium on it so that it shows up on, uh, the fluoroscopy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. The video fluoroscopy. It's like an X, like a video x-ray. Yes. Like a video x-ray. Exactly. So, so that, um, 
you can see where the food's going if it's if it's landing near their larynx or their airway or if it's going down to their esophagus and then SLPs will analyze that video and determine where the muscles are weak how we can rehabilitate the swallow and do swallow exercises um to to um you know help our clients be able to eat and drink more safely so just for people who are interested because I like to nerd out on all the SLP stuff <laughs> oh yeah yeah sorry that's good because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not SLPs and have no idea what that is mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's a good point like doing per diem um is a nice way because like you said a lot of times per diem SLPs aren't expected to do those and so for the first couple months I didn't and then um and, and at this point I wasn't even trying to learn which is so crazy to me because if if like rewind two years I would have been jumping at the chance to learn MBS to learn fees mm-hmm and I already kind of knew that I, I wanted to get out of the setting. So I wasn't pushing them to learn the MBS, but eventually as a team member um, to take the work, you know, the workload off of the other um, SLPs, they wanted to train me on it. So yeah, especially if you're in the schools, like you can do a per diem during the summertime when you have a lot more time. And if you're able to offer, you know, days and weekends, um, that's really valuable, especially the weekends. If you're able to offer any weekend hours to hospitals, that's extremely, extremely valuable. Um, and so I'm sure you could use that as leverage to get any kind of training that you want. Um, so, yeah. So Esty, what was it about the hospitals that you, that kind of made you realize, Oh wait, maybe this isn't my dream right now. I, ah, it's like so hard to explain. I, so I, I took a, travel position and this is very rare but somehow it worked out that there was a full-time acute care travel position in San Diego that hired me they must have just been extremely desperate to hire me someone who had no acute care experience since my grad school externships and I had not been doing per diem I had the six months in the skilled nursing facility and I was very upfront and I will say it is very when you're getting into a different setting to be very upfront with your shortcomings and what you don't know. So I wanted to be very clear to them. This is what I'm comfortable doing. And this is what I'm not comfortable doing without further support. Um, And to not let them push me into doing something I'm uncomfortable with um, until I'm ready and until I have that support. And so, um, so yeah, I started working full-time. And when I first started there, there was another travel speech therapist and there was a full-time And after about two months, the other travel speech therapist went on to a different assignment. He didn't extend and the full-time speech therapist quit. So I was the only speech therapist in this hospital and acute rehab um, facility for, I want to say it was about a month. Um, And there was a per diem speech therapist who would come in and do MBSs. And I originally thought I was just going to have to jump in and start doing them. And I had been shadowing the other therapists a little bit leading up to it. Um, And then the directors of rehab were like, no, we're just not going to do instrumentals until we get another speech therapist. And then I told them like, well, I'm going to have to quit if I don't have instrumentals for my patients. I can't. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so then we worked it out with the per diem speech therapist and she would come in. There was one week she came in literally like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and would just run like one or two MBSs that were needed. Um, And thankfully that was very, that was a very short term solution because we ended up getting an amazing speech therapist hired who was like the lead therapist um and so she was hired like around Thanksgiving time last year and she was incredible she was so nice um but I was just 
always burnt out. So I, it was exciting to be in this setting finally, but at the end of the day, I was still feeling so burnt out and um, just kind of realizing like, it doesn't light me up the same, just like dysphagia. So dysphagia is a disorder of swallowing for anyone who doesn't know. Dysphagia does not light me up the same as working with um like really diving into that communication therapy. And I was able to have quite a few patients at the hospital who were working on their communication and it was fun and everything. But um, there's also just so much, I mean, you're just like running around all day and I was just getting so burnt out. Um, I had no energy for myself at the end of it. And it just wasn't lighting me up. I think that's really the only answer I can give is that it wasn't lighting me up. And that's how I knew it wasn't, what I wanted to keep investing in because I know what it feels like to be super excited and have a lot of motivation and energy for something that I'm doing with work. Um, and I just didn't feel that at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started working at another hospital um, per diem, just kind of working on the weekends and um yeah, it was just kind of the same situation. I thought maybe it was the hospital that I was at that they're just spreading me too thin, but it's just really kind of across the board. You get spread as thin as possible. So yeah, I just kind of like came to that realization over the past year. And then I was exploring just a lot of companies just having to like answer to somebody else. I think I just realized that's just not really something. I mean, I guess a big thing was like, I worked for a company very like short, very short. This is one of the six weeks time period that I worked for this company and the speech therapists there were amazing loved them all the staff was amazing the patients were amazing but it bothered me a lot that they would kind of cram in as many patients as possible so I would have like a three people in a group working on different goals and they're going to be you know billing each of their insurance and I was like I'm not giving them quality therapy like it would be Mm -hmm. so much better quality therapy if I could do it one-on-one or if I could do it with these two because they have the same goals and then not having to like split all of my time and the same company when they were hiring me I asked them for more that they had offered me and they wouldn't give it to me Um, and I still ended up taking the job and I should have not like if I just feel like if you're asking for a reasonable amount and they can't even come back with anything at all, like, I just feel like that's disrespectful to you as a candidate, you know, um, they can at least counter offer something. Maybe they can't give you everything you're asking for, but they can at least attempt it if they really value you and they didn't. And so I took this job and then I ended up regretting it. I guess I just realized like that this, this company was making so much money off of the therapist and we were not getting paid well at all. Um, and so from there, I was just kind of like, I don't want to keep working for other companies that are going to pay me bare minimum, but are making so much money off of my license. And so that's when I decided I wanted to have my own practice. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That feeling of being the cash cow yeah, is so real mm-hmm. in the medical setting because you mm-hmm. know, they want you to bill for, you know, like as much as possible and they want you to group people. I can't even remember now, honestly, because my skilled nursing facility was a while ago now. But I just remember that feeling of being like, they just are want me to, it, it feels unethical a little bit. Like they just want me to make as much money as possible for the facility. For and 
they're not putting the the people first. Um, and that was really hard to witness. So yeah. I get it. And um, yeah, good on you for starting your own practice. I mean, that's amazing. Something you'll be so good at. So I'm excited for you. Yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. I I kind of explored like corporate speech pathology. I took a really amazing course. If anyone is interested in corporate speech pathology, they don't really talk about it a lot in grad school. Um, we had a professor who does corporate speech pathology and he had um, the accent modification clinical rotation. So I had actually known about it since grad school, but I know a lot of people don't. So this course was really amazing and it was really fun. And I had a couple of clients that I worked with and I enjoyed it and I tried it and I realized it's not what I can do for, a, for my entire caseload. I think it's, it, it'll be fun for me to do on the side. And now I, I took that course and I have the knowledge to be able to kind of do that for people, um, who, who need those services, but, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what my practice is going to look like, but I'm kind of just taking a step back and taking this year to just kind of like get to know myself again, even outside of like our career, even just getting to know myself on like a personal level. Um, cause I do just feel like there's been so much transformation in my personal life and what I want for my career and what I want out of my relationships. Like, I just feel like everything is kind of changing for me. And I don't know if that's a collective feeling. I do have friends that are going through the exact same thing. Um, and Izzy, I feel like you as well, right? Oh yeah. And I can just really relate to you too in, um, just wanting a job that lights me up. Like I don't want to settle for less because I know how, like you were saying, like, I know how it feels to be really passionate about what I'm doing. And I like to me, like I'm not money motivated. I'm, I'm more like passion motivated. And if I'm excited about something, like I'll put my whole heart into it. And that's where I want to be. And I, I totally feel you with right now needing that pause and just being like, you know what, let's just gain a little bit more experience here and there and see where it takes me, you know? Um, yeah. So I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So lesson to those speech therapy students, speech pathology students out there, explore everything that you're interested in now and just keep an open mind, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And some people are different. Like I know some people who are like, like they put, they can compartmentalize, like my career is just my career. And then I have my life. And like, you know, I go to, I do this job because, you know, I, it's my job and I work nine to five and, you know, I don't, I don't hate it. I don't love it, but I do it. And they're able to separate, like I do it just for my, you know, so I can live. And for me, I'm like, no, I want to actually be doing, like, I want to have my hands in something that's like really special to me. So yeah, I think different people are different, but I, I also would urge people to like really go out there and find what you love. Um, yeah, I agree. It's different for everybody, but I agree with you too. Like I've always kind of wanted to find my calling and I felt like I did with speech 
pathology and I and I do still feel like I have I just <clears throat> kind of need a I don't know what I need to do but I'll figure it out um but yeah I guess ultimately it's like find what lights you up and if what lights you up is what you do after you get off of work then that's what lights you up for you yeah like you're so right there are some people who are able to kind of separate that and have a different kind of I don't even know how to explain it but like they're probably not going to have the same feelings that you and I do. And they're able to still feel satisfied, you know, working something because it allows them to do what they really love on the weekends or when they get time off or, you know, they're able to just kind of, everybody just has different priorities. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the life purpose coach in me is like thinking about how, yeah, life purpose doesn't necessarily have to be a job. Like you're saying, it could be those outside activities outside of work, but it just, you know, it really reminds me of like, what I truly believe is that when you're doing what you're passionate about, like it's not draining you, it's giving you energy and you're able to just like do and do and do, of course, take care of yourself and self-care and all that stuff on the side too, but you're able to do and do and do and just give. And it doesn't drain you because you're, you just love it so much. And I've definitely felt like that in a job. Um, and it's the best feeling. It's like, I'm doing this because I love it. I don't actually care what I'm making per hour. I don't really care how many hours I'm spending on this. Like all I want to do is do it. And I just really believe if people can find that, that thing for them, then you're just going to have like that and like very abundant flow of energy, of like passion, of love, of success. And like the money will find you, the people will find you if you're doing what you really are like on this earth to do. So that's, that's kind of my belief. I really do believe we all have like a, a gift and a purpose and it doesn't necessarily matter in what you know avenue you are doing that but as long as you're kind of like doing the essence of your gift like you know you will be like lit up inside so so Esty what was your favorite job so far oh my gosh that's such a hard one because like I see positives in a lot of them yeah Gosh, that's so hard. Out of like the ones that I've worked since grad school. Mm-hmm. I would say like working in the hospital and the acute rehab. I would say has been my favorite out of all of them. And it's because I can think back to patients and even like certain days that really stood out to me. I had a day, it was the same day that I had the interview for the travel assignment with the school. And I was working um, at two different hospitals. So I spent the morning at one hospital and then I, the afternoon I had to drive to the other one. So this morning I'm at this hospital, it's super small. And like, I literally had two patients to see. I just had two. And both of them made such a big impression on me. Like both of the patients that I saw, I think I spent like an hour and a half with one of the patients and like 45 minutes with the other patient just directly, which like in a hospital, you really don't spend that much time with them. So I was just like, well, I'm here. I'm supposed to see them. I don't care about my productivity. They were just very like um, complex, like speech cases. One of them was for swallowing. Um, It was a cancer patient, very advanced. And so that was interesting because he was like such a grateful patient. 
and he was just like, wow, thank, thank you so much for coming. I can't try any of the, of what you're offering me because I can't swallow any of it. But like, I'm so glad that you came. He was just like so sweet. And then another patient um, had had a stroke and had pretty severe um, expressive aphasia, but her um, comprehension was seemed to be pretty good. But um, she had been NPO, which NPO means like nothing by mouth. So you're not eating or drinking anything. She had been that way for about like two months and they were um, about to do like a permanent feeding tube, um, a peg tube. And, but they, her sister was like really fighting for her to get reevaluated. So I happened to be at this hospital that day and they were like, okay, we'll have a speech calm. She had already been discharged by the speech therapy team because at one point they thought she was going hospice, which means like, mm. it's the end of your life. Like you're no longer getting therapy. And I had wondered like, why, why is she not already on our caseload? And I go to see her and she appears, I mean, I'm only doing a bedside evaluation, which has its limitations, but she appeared to be swallowing fine and in her last swallow evaluation like she couldn't even hold an ice chip in her mouth there was no hyolaryngeal movement nothing you know and then when I go in she's completely alert and awake um, she's able to follow all of my commands and you know we're able to kind of have interactions and I'm like she kind of she looks really good and she's she takes that you know ice chip and pudding and juice and she's doing great and um it was just like really incredible. And I didn't even have her on my caseload to talk about speech, but I was like, she hasn't been seen by speech at all, but she could really benefit this early in her stage. And if she made such a good progression with her swallowing, like there's a good chance that, you know, she could also have a lot of progress with her speech. So I like sat down to kind of just do like a very preliminary evaluation of, you know, let's see if she can repeat can she vocalize at all? Like even with anything like that. And she was just like holding my hand and like crying and it's, and it just like really meant a lot to me. And it was like, this is why I do what I do. So mm. your question that had nothing to do with your question, but no, <laughs> I think it's like, that was my favorite because I had a lot of patients that were just so meaningful to me. Mm, absolutely. When you're able to like give somebody a diet again, after being NPO, Oh, that's game changer. Mm-hmm. It, it's so important, you know, especially for people who are in the hospital, kind of sometimes the only pleasurable moments are eating, getting your meals. And if you're not even able to eat, your your language has been taken away. I mean, yeah. gosh, it's just can be so special to, to, to uh, liberate people in that way. Mm-hmm. And that also shows how like, you really can't give up hope for patients. Like they can change on a dime, you know, the way she went from not being able to maintain an ice chip to then, you know, drinking and swallowing fine. It's like, yeah, we, we you really never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Those strokes, those strokes will surprise you. Yeah. And I think it's, it was also really significant to me and really sad that the reason she got another swallow evaluation was because her sister fought so hard. And if you don't have family there to advocate for you, or if your family doesn't know how to advocate for you, or they don't know that they even can advocate for you. So I was like, we, we have to do this MBS. And so luckily there was another therapist coming in the next day. You know, I emailed them. We're all, you know, in communication, everyone knows. And the, the permanent SLP that was normally there during the week, like we were all kind of caught up on this case. Um, 
I don't, she never gave me an update. And that's another sad thing about the hospitals is like you, once you're off a case, um, you can't, you're not supposed to follow up, you know, HIPAA violations and everything like that. So I really don't know what happened with her MBS, but it looked like she was doing really well. I'm, I think she was at least able to start a diet, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. About advocating. It's true. It's, it's really interesting. Just like how different the course of somebody's treatment will go if they have either themselves or a family member to advocate for them. And then people are just so different with like their perception of the medical providers. Like some people just completely trust what medical providers are saying and just, they don't question it. Some people question, some people advocate. So it it really changes the trajectory of somebody's recovery. And that is, that's always been something that like, you know, it can break your heart a little bit because you think about the people who don't have advocates. Yeah. And there are a lot. What was your favorite job that you've had? I feel like I can already guess. Oh yeah. It's easy. Everyone knows. Um, <laughs> my favorite job was the hands down, the nonprofit I worked at, um, best job ever. I loved it so much because we had maybe about like 35 clients that were ongoing, you know, the whole, some had been there for 10 years, some were new. Um, but we were able to get so close to them. And what I love so much about it was you know, honestly, like we didn't really do strict documentation. We weren't billing insurance. These people were just here, you know, getting support from other people with aphasia. And, um, it was all adults, people who have aphasia. And I mean, there was so much camaraderie. There was so much like I, the first day I went to visit just the laughter in the room was amazing. And then there's other times where let's say we have a new person with aphasia coming in to meet the group for the first time. And every single time somebody new came, they would cry on their first day. And it was just like this moment where you see someone like scared because maybe this is their first time socializing since their stroke or brain injury. You, or you see them just relieved that there's other people like them. There's other people struggling with aphasia too, and apraxia and dysarthria and, and some of the other communication challenges that come after a stroke or brain, brain injury. Um, it was just beautiful. And I loved it because I got so close to the, the clients and their families. We did fun things just like send us pictures of what you're doing during COVID. Like, what are you doing at home during, how are you filling your days? Like, so we, you know, it was just like, I really got to know what they were doing at home and what their life looked like, what their passions were, what their interests were, what their past occupation was. Um, yeah, got really close with families was always emailing people. You know, if somebody didn't show up one day, I got to, I just would check in with them. Where were you today? How are you doing? And like, talk on the phone with family, see what was going on with, with, in their lives. And I just really, really love that. I mean, this was the job that I would give everything to, and I, I would pour my heart into it. Um, for free, honestly, I would do it for free. And at first I was doing it for free. I got this job because, so I was working in a skilled nursing facility. And then on my days off, I would go volunteer at this nonprofit. And then like a couple months into it, the director of the nonprofit, like was like, Hey, can we have a meeting? And I just thought she just wanted to like, get to know me a little bit more. Cause we had never sat down together and she actually hired me in that meeting. And I was not expecting it at all. She just asked me if I wanted a job 
at this, at this nonprofit. And I was, you know, it was such an honor because they really had never hired a speech therapist before me and her were the only two employees, me and the director. So that's definitely a job that just like, I hold near and dear to my heart and I will support forever. Um, if anyone wants to donate to them, let me know. I can give you the info, but, um, yeah, super amazing job. So just to give all you listeners kind of like the story of my whole career up until where I am today, um, buckle up. Um, so basically in grad, well, in undergraduate, you know, I was so passionate about this field, absolutely ate up all the information, loved my classes, hugest nerd ever, like just would, would shadow whenever I could try out different settings, you know, like all about it. And then graduate school came and the first year I was like that. I was, I was super into it all about it. And then just like, I really, okay. So I really, really, really wanted this one hospital clinical internship really bad. And it was, it was like an irrational, like I wanted it so bad. Like I remember like the February of our first year when nobody's, we weren't really thinking about internships right then. Right. SC. I was like crying my eyes out like every day being like, oh my God, I just want this hospital so bad. And like, I I don't want somebody else to get it. You know, like I want, I want it. Like I was just really like, I really want it. So that the summer between our first two years rolls around and I um, got an interview for the hospital that I wanted against like a couple other people. I was so excited, did the interview, got the position it was my dream position. Oh my gosh, I'm over the moon, right? Like I'm so excited. And then, so this was a position at a Navy base. Okay. So I was in Tahoe. Wait, that was, that was the hospital you really wanted to be at? Naval medical. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember just knowing its reputation as being like so intense. Yeah. That's the hospital I really wanted. <laughs> I know exactly. So so I'm in Tahoe. I, I've got the internship. I'm like on a little vacation with my family and the supervisor calls me and she's like, do you have a twin? I'm like, no. She's like, have you ever been in trouble for anything? And I'm like, no. She's like, your fingerprints failed through the FBI. And I'm like, what? Like, obviously just shocked. Right. And, um, it just sent me into such a bad mental place because it somehow triggered this like imposter syndrome in me that I was already feeling in graduate school of like, I had these feelings of like the grad, I'm letting the grad program down. They, they regret letting me in. Like I had all these types of feelings that I wasn't doing enough in graduate school. And I was being like a, I wasn't like this outstanding student that I used to be. And when my fingerprints failed, that was just like, oh my gosh, like they found me out. They found out that I'm actually like not worthy of this. Like I was so um, taken aback and it really sent me into like a, I was like scared the government was gonna come like knocking on my door and be like, you know, like you're under arrest or something. Also guys, I've literally done nothing. I've never been arrested. I have nothing on my record, but for some reason it just like sparked this fear in me that something that I did something bad. Like it gave me that like feeling. And, um, I basically through that experience, I really had to let go of wanting that 
like Esty said, a very intense uh, placement. And um, I had to let it go. And that was really hard for me. And I, I didn't want to work in a school and I had to be in a school the first semester of our second year. And that to me was like devastating because I really wanted to be in a hospital. I just wanted that position so bad. I wanted it guaranteed because there was kind of like talk amongst our cohort that like it wasn't guaranteed to everyone. And there was also the talk of if you don't have a co- like a internship, then you can't get a job in a hospital and you know, all those things that kind of scare you into thinking you need a hospital, like in order to one day end up in a hospital. So anyways, um, yeah, that was my first thing that kind of like opened my eyes to, to changing my perspective of like, okay, maybe I, it it helped me let go of needing this most prestigious job and most prestigious internship. And it, I had to relax into like the schools and I had a great experience in the schools and it was fine. And then, I mean, everything happens for a reason because then I got an internship in the hospital the next semester, the hospital that SD actually had her internship in. And I had the most amazing supervisor, smartest person I've ever met. And I got to carpool every day with my now best friend, April. And so it was totally meant to be because me and April were able to get so close. So anyways, that happened. And so that was my first kind of like moment of like having my boat rocked and letting go of some of the things I was holding on to so tightly in like career and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. Cause I really wanted to be in the hospitals. Yeah. So it just kind of was starting to like, and I was starting to also say things like, Oh my gosh, I just want to be a waitress. Like I just want like a fun job. Like, I don't even know if this is what I want to do anymore. I don't even know if I want to do speech. Like I just kind of started being all over the place. Like I want to be an author. I want to be a yoga instructor. I want to be, you know, every, all these things. And, um, then I graduated graduate school, got a job at skilled nursing facility in Arizona. That was my way of kind of getting into the medical field. Um, the skilled nursing facility, I, I don't want to bash on it too hard because I know people are just doing their best, but it was just kind of a devastating place to work because patients for whatever reason were not getting just like the basic care that they needed met. And that was really hard for me to see. For example, I'd walk into a room, you know, and I'm ready to like do a swallowing treatment or, you know, like I'm ready to do swallowing exercises, eat a meal, like do the whole thing. But instead I'd walk in, for example, and like the call light would be on and the patient would be like, can you help me? I've had my call light on for two hours. And I'd be like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, I'd be like, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. What, what can I do for you? What do you need? And they might be like, I just need to go to the bathroom so bad. And it's like, you know, then I'd have to like get a nurse in there or a CNA in there. Like, can you please help this person go to the bathroom? Like, it was just really devastating to see these people like not, not getting that like immediate care that everyone deserves. But I understand because CNAs do have so many patients and they're doing their best, but it would be like, I'd walk in, maybe they'd, you know, need something but always it would be like their meal would be like three feet away from the bed their bed would be like at like 30 degrees like they weren't in meal ready position at all even though they were just given lunch maybe they don't have their glasses on they don't have their dentures in which are all like basic necessities to have a meal you know uh they don't have their hearing aids in so it would be like and I'm totally fine doing this stuff but it would mostly be like me just 
getting people's needs met. Like let's brush your dentures. Let's put them in, let's get your glasses on. Let's get you sat up right. 90 degrees. Like, and then maybe we can start the meal and start the swallow therapy. But there's other examples that were just like, yeah, I was doing, I was just doing, and I turned my job into that. I was like, I don't really give a shit if I'm not doing skilled therapy. I just want to take care of these people. So I would do like, I don't know if they wanted to, I can't think of examples right now because it's been a little while, but I was just like, I'll just get their needs met. If we'll talk about how to, you know, I can't think of an example, but Essie, did you, can you relate to this where you just were like at some point just getting the needs met of the patients? Oh yeah. And even at like the recent hospital that or hospitals that I've worked at a lot of times, um, like you, go into a room and there's a million other needs like you're saying that the patient needs to to be met and that's not our job or in our scope and we're technically not supposed to you know bill insurance for things like that we're supposed to bill for skilled therapy but we have to take so much time fixing all of these other you know issues and like you're saying like I wouldn't I wouldn't put that on the CNAs I wouldn't put it on the nurses I put that on like hospital administration not having things fully staffed or not figuring out good, you know, not problem solving these procedures or like highlighting the importance of, of certain things, you know? Um, but yeah, I can totally relate to you. I think that's a, something that a lot of staff members in skilled nursing facilities probably experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are fun things about it too. Like, you know, writing goals to like have somebody maybe with dementia like participate in two or three social activities a week so like I would bring them down to like the activities maybe it was like painting a picture and eating a sandwich and like that was super fun to do with with patients so I definitely appreciated it too and I really like we had like restorative dining which was which was fun um where there's like an all people with swallowing impairments uh dining together so the SLP can be there and a, a restorative nurse can be there like guiding them, helping, making sure they're using their strategies, making sure they have the right diet consistency. So I liked that. Like I like doing the lunch and there were, yeah, I don't want to hate on it too hard. Essie's right. It's, it comes down to administration. And that part was, was really hard on me just because yeah, people who were higher up than me, I just, I noticed behaviors in them that didn't feel right to me. And it was, it was really hard to just kind of witness some of those things when I think SD and I both like do have high morals and values and we're genuinely there to like serve the people. So it was hard. And, um, it also, okay. I'm just going on a little rant, but also I did have a supervisor who would urge me against getting instrumentals for my patients. And that really bothered me because you can only tell so much from a bedside evaluation. And when I, when I had a concern, like maybe I would do like the Yale swallow protocol and there would be like a lot of coughing. Um, I'm like, okay, that's like an indicator of aspiration. We need to do an MBS or a fees. And my supervisor would be like, well, do you really need to do it? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we really need to do it or else you can't really do great treatment if you don't have a good evaluation. So wait, that's so interesting because my clinical supervisor, was it your um like speech supervisor? Or was it like a uh, different? Yep. I see. I thought that 
I thought that must be so rare. I thought like majority of speech therapists would recognize the importance of that. And the thing about skilled nursing facilities is that they get paid a chunk of money from, you know, Medicare A, Medicare B, insurance, whatever, to do every necessary test. So they are getting paid to do the modified barium swallow if that's a test that's needed. But they want to save that money if they don't have to. And so there's always pushback. But like what was interesting is like I would ask for instrumentals and my clinical supervisor would advise against it. And I remember one time my I went around my supervisor. I was like, I'm done dealing with her. I asked my um, director of rehab who was a um, CODA. So she was an occupational therapist assistant who became the director of rehab. Um, and she was amazing. She was incredible. I would do anything for her. And I said, this patient needs an instrumental. And she was like, all right, went to admin, told admin, admin was like, all right. And my, like, it was like my supervisor who was the one that was blocking it, which just blew my mind. Cause I'm like, you're supposed to be one of us. Like you're supposed to be like advocating for us. Totally. Um, so that's interesting that like your, your speech, you know, your clinical supervisor did the same thing. Clinical fellowship yeah. supervisor. Yeah. And she was the DOR. So I like really thought that I was entering a pretty good situation with an SLP as the director of rehab. Um, and, you know, just, it, it didn't work. It didn't pan out the way I like envisioned it. And so I also just want to say at the beginning of my clinical fellowship year, I wrote out like my five-year plan of all my goals for speech language pathology. There's so much on there. I was just looking back at it. And um, again, this was like a, this was, I think, okay. So then I kind of had like a family emergency happen around end of February of 2020. And it made me realize like, I really did not want to go back to the school nursing facility. And I was like, God, I just, life's too short. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Because I just did, I would cry like every day after being there. Like it was just really hard. So I put in my two weeks and literally like the week that I stopped working was the week the shutdown happened and the whole world was at home. And I was so grateful that I wasn't in a skilled nursing facility during COVID. I mean, it just was a blessing. And I know the facility kind of fell apart. It's so unfortunate and so sad, but we lost so many of our long-term patients to COVID. It was, it was really devastating. It was like really heartbreaking and I wasn't even there, but just hearing about it through my friends who work there but I've just felt so grateful because at that time I, I immediately, you know, started working at the nonprofit, um, remotely. This was after I had been hired with the nonprofit. Um, and you know, it just was like the perfect job to have through COVID. And I was, I'm so, so, so grateful. And I do feel like I have, you know, just been in the right place at the right time. Like, even I remember like on my way to the nonprofit, when I would drive there before we went remote, all the addresses were like one, 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 and like all these angel numbers. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I just, I, when I realized it, I was like, Oh wow. I'm like on this path, like where I'm supposed to be. So also I just want people to know that when I was at the nonprofit, you know, not all of my hours were clinical. So I wasn't getting very many hours towards my CF because uh, to rewind a little bit, I actually left the nursing facility during my CF as well, similar to SD. So I was completing my CF at the nonprofit, but again, minimal clinical hours because I was also doing things like helping run the social media, um, helping write newsletters, um, you know, just researching different things that we needed to buy for the 
for the facility or just like all those things. Cause like I said, it was just me and the director. So we were really operating the, the nonprofit, just the two of us. So, um, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I had a really long clinical fellowship. Like it went from like 2019 to like 2021. And again, I had to let go of being the best, being the first. Like I wanted to be like the best graduate student there ever was. And then it turned out that like out of my whole cohort, I was like the very last to finish their CF and the last to have their C's. And it it really bothered me at some points. I was really upset and it made me sad but really, when you take a step back, like it does not matter. Like now I have my C's and I actually feel lucky because since I was a little bit later to get them, then I'm a little bit later to have to renew like my continuing eds and all that stuff. So it's actually a blessing looking back. So don't be ashamed if your CF takes you a while. Take your time. Take your time, girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever you are out there. Take your time. That got me all through COVID. But then when I moved back to California, I started an early intervention. I was going into the homes for a little bit when I was in San Diego, um, had my medical event happen to me. I had to move back home and like, amazingly, my same company that's in San Diego also has a base here in Modesto and they let me start working remotely as soon as I was like feeling a bit better. So, um, now I'm able to do early intervention remotely. And again, I just feel so blessed that I was kind of like, I got the right job that I needed for me. And I didn't even know it at the time because this job has held me through like now I'm able to do it remote. It's just exactly what I need at this time too. So very, very grateful for that. Um, I took a really long leave where I wasn't working. I was working at a restaurant when I first moved home and I have continuity on my resume that says I've been working for the same company since back when I was living in San Diego because I did stay with the same company. So um, I'm, I just feel really lucky. That's kind of like my little story there. And now I'm also currently looking for jobs. And I'd love to talk about what me and SD like have in mind. Like, what are our dreams? What is next for us? Because I'm really trying to figure that out right now. So thanks for listening to my story. Um, Thank you for sharing. I feel like it is important for people, especially if they're in our field to kind of hear what the reality is after graduation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to say that like mine and Izzy's trajectories are common. Um, I think we have a lot of classmates who are still working for the company that they had with their clinical fellow, which is incredible, you know, mm-hmm. to be working somewhere at that long term. And I do think like with our job, when you find a setting or a company that you enjoy, you can work there forever because they're going to need you forever. Um, mm-hmm. There's always going to be a need for us. So that's something that's really nice. And, um, and yeah, we've, we have classmates who, or who have worked somewhere for, you know, a couple years and then decided to do something different. And um, there's just, there's a lot of different options to explore and you don't have, like, you're not stuck in a box of what you did for your, graduate internships or what you did for your clinical fellow. Totally. Not at all. Um, I will say though, do you feel this way SD where like, I do look at my friends who have been in the same job since their clinical fellowship year. And now they're saying to me, they're like, yeah, like this year is so much easier. Like I finally have a handle on things. Like I have my flow. I have my system down. I've been, and I get kind of like envious and I'm like regretting a little bit like wow should I have done that am I behind 
am I doing something wrong? Because I don't have that feeling, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I don't have, I haven't really mastered one sector of our field yet. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's pros and cons to every path that you can take. Yeah, it's true. And I'm sure, you know, maybe those people are looking at you and they're like, wow, like if Izzy wanted to, she could go work in this setting or she could take this job or or do this and this. And like, I've only been doing this one thing, so I can't. So, you know, I think, I, I think a lot of it depends on personality and I think there's just like pros and cons to both pathways. But I mean, one thing I know about our field is like, we're never going to feel like we know it all. Like there's always new research. There's always new cases that are like, what the heck is going on in every setting? Oh, you're going right. to have a case where it's like, what is happening? Um, you know, so yeah, I do. And I feel like for any of our listeners who are familiar with human design, um, I love human design, but I'm a manifesting generator. And a big part of that is like, we have a lot of interests and we start a lot of projects and we abandon a lot of projects. And I always have like, been really hard on myself for that of like I'll start something and then I'm like ah eh, um, it's not for me I'm gonna go do something else and um just kind of accepting that like if that's part of how you're going to find your path you kind of just have to let that happen like I could never force myself to stay on a path if I didn't feel like it was right for me um and I mean we got through grad school like we worked our asses off in undergrad to get into one of the top grad schools like we we have longevity in what we're passionate about like we have done it and we you know got through grad school so like we have that but we want to explore other options you know so Mm -hmm. yeah being okay with it like you were saying and like over the years as I was like kind of saying in my little story there like I, I just, every year I loosened up a little bit onto like what my expectations for my career were. Um, like I, for a long time, I really wanted to do swallowing and I really wanted to do pediatric dysphagia. That was like my dream. And not to say I'm not still interested. Like I still do shadow pediatric dysphagia cases from time to time because I do want to learn more about it. But anyways, I just feel like I'm so much more okay being like, you know, maybe my dream would be like SD and I have talked about starting an aphasia group and like, that's, you know, it's, it's a lot more like relaxed than a typical setting. And like, it's not as, I don't know, like high profile. Right. But it's like, so it's such a valid, worthy, amazing passion. So I think, yeah, just like being okay with letting go of some of my dreams and seeing if they come back to me is, um, has been really important on my journey. Yeah. Seeing if they come back. That's interesting. Cause I, I remember writing down and I used to tell people, I think I remember like when I first met Brittany in grad school and we had like moved into our little house together. Um, and we were asking each other, like what we wanted to, like what our ultimate goal was. And I would always say, like, I wanted to have a nonprofit for aphasia, just like the one, because I volunteered at one very similar to the one that you worked at, Izzy, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, in Austin, Texas. And I volunteered for the last two years of my undergrad. And that's how I really fell in love with working with people who have aphasia. It was so incredible, like so fun. And 
the people were so amazing. And so that was what, like through grad school, I was like, oh, I want that nonprofit. I want to work in a hospital first, get that experience. Like eventually I want to have a nonprofit. And then I remember last year, like talking about it with the nonprofit and thinking like, well, I could never, I couldn't sustain myself with a nonprofit. Like, how would I be able to like live off of that? And I kind of like abandoned that dream. And I wonder if maybe like all of these things happening are just kind of pointing me back towards that of like, this is really what I wanted to do. And I would, I would absolutely a hundred percent like love to do it. Stay tuned guys. We, um, we'll see what happens. I would love to do it too. And we both have experience. Mm -hmm. We know what it would look like, but I also have so many ideas and, um, I'd be super excited about different things like an aphasia choir. I would love Mm -hmm. to do an aphasia choir. Um, but other ideas too. Yes, I'll be in charge of the because I'm tone deaf. So you can be in charge of that. (laughs) Um, I want to. I really do want to do it one day. I I totally hear you. And I think one thing for us to keep in mind is that like it's been done before, you know, like other people have done it. Yeah, I think that's always good to know, and like good for our listeners to know too. Like if you're confused on your career trajectory, or like you're in grad school and you're thinking like oh, I didn't get the internship I wanted. Like, how am I ever going to get to the setting I want? You know, like, just know that it's possible. Honestly, anything is possible. You set your mind to it and you like work hard. It, you, it might come in unconventional ways, but like you, I'm a firm believer that like you can accomplish anything if it's really what you want and you really put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. And Esty is definitely a testament to that. Like you do that. I've always looked up to you for that. Even in graduate school, I just felt like you were able to, to do you know, you put yourself in hard situations. Like you challenge yourself and you push yourself. And I really admire that about you. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> you. I appreciate you saying that. Of course. I also just wanted to say for all of those in graduate school, um, you've probably heard this before, but like, oh my gosh, we have so many jobs open to us. I just started my little job search and my phone will not stop ringing. And that's not because I'm amazing. It's because I'm a speech language pathologist and we're so needed. So like, don't worry. There are so many jobs and don't just say yes to the first job, because I feel like that's what I did with the skilled nursing facility. And looking back, had I explored a little bit more and taken something that was more right for me, I, you know, my path would have been different. So just know that, that there's so much out there. And like Esty was saying, you can, reach for your the compensation that you're looking for and you do deserve that yeah mm-hmm. is that it is that the episode did we do it <laughs> I think so <laughs> I feel like that that's like a nice note to end it on so yeah thank you everybody for listening and I I hope that like even if we just help one person who's in a similar situation like I feel like it does help a lot to just know that other people have gone through similar conflicts or like similar changes in their path Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I want to keep people dreaming big and following their passions and not settling and not letting go of what really is important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, if any SLPs are out there listening, would love to hear from you on what your favorite setting has been and why. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Key to Connection podcast. 
You can connect with us on Instagram at the key to connection podcast. DM us if you'd like to join in on the conversation or have an idea for our next topic or guest. Tune in on Thursdays for new episodes.